Welcome back, Rebels. What motivates you? What motivates me? That's a good question. Uh, I think the thing that motivates me the most is just doing things that I love. If I can be put in a situation where I know I'm going to go and do something that I enjoy, it motivates me to go and do it. I've started to think, like, why do I do Monday to Friday for working? And I'm like, this is just something that I don't have to do this, but it's something that I just have put on myself of these are the days you work, these are the hours you work. And it's I'm like, oh, I, don't, I could actually change that if I want to. It's like no one's telling me that I have to go to work at these times to do these days. And I've decided actually I'm going to start changing that up a little bit because it's like um, my girlfriend works. She has every other Friday off. So I'm like, I'm going to take every other Friday off because I can. And it means that actually that's going to lead to a happier life. I can go and do more things that I want to do. I've got more time to go and do them. So yeah, motivation, I suppose, is the ability to do what you want to do. And the idea that it's doing what actually physically you want to do rather than what the world's telling you you want to do. Because it's like most people, actually, if you look at all the stats, the Monday to Friday, nine to five, isn't a very productive kind of route for this. And I think we even talk about this in this episode. So much of the way that we do things is based on how we feel like we're supposed to do them based on what the society norm is. Sometimes it's worth just thinking, what what do you want to do? I think that's the question that not enough people know the answer to or have ever asked themselves is what do you want? And as soon as you can work that out, then you can start to map towards getting those things. Yeah, so the reason I ask for, ask that question about motivation is because there's a section in Rebecca Seal's new book, Solo, and she's the guest on this week's episode. And she's talk, she talks about motivation in that, and she talks about meaning in work. And just because you're a nurse doesn't mean that you do a job with meaning. You just do a job. Everyone does a job. And the meaning is what is placed onto it by the worker. So if you can work in a hospital and that's really meaningful for you, then that's great. You have found meaning at work. And it made me wonder about how, like, how we can find meaning in our work if if maybe it's something that we don't enjoy because there's definitely parts of my work that I don't enjoy but I do find the whole process as a whole really meaningful yeah it's interesting so just thinking about kind of like what when I think about my actual work what is it about that's meaningful and I think when you think of like taking photos as my example it's like from the outside that could be well that's if someone else was looking at that they could be like well not much meaning to that but then I think it's once you're actually in it and you find the meaning within the things because it's like you there might be meaning there that you just don't know and I think it is only when you spend the time to actually look into it and think what is the meaning here how can I find meaning in what I do that you then start to see it because just as we're talking now I'm kind of thinking through like well yes I'm taking images and kind of putting them online and people can use them in their portfolios and stuff but then it's like the meaning there when I think about the conversations I have with people when I think of how that can really benefit their life going forward then suddenly like there's so much meaning in that because I know that by using my photos is going to give them a better chance to get a job which could then lead them this thing that they've spent their whole life trying to achieve so just by finding that like little positive in it then suddenly adds even more meaning to it and I think once you know that almost like I feel like I'm kind of like just realizing things as we're going along here but now I'm like oh yeah that that will mean so much to people for the fact that it could change someone's life and I think now going forward because I've spotted that meaning it will then just build and build and build on itself and I think once you understand the meaning as well then you can make sure that you're helping facilitate that even better that you're helping bring even more meaning bring even more benefit to your customers to your the people you're working with yeah I, I think when we when we started graffiti life like we're on the surface we're painting murals for big brands there's there's not like how could you say that it was really meaningful that you just painted a mural for coca-cola for example and but for us there was like a huge amount of meaning and it wasn't in the coca-cola artwork necessarily it was in the fact that we were providing these opportunities for our friends and peers like one thing that's always been important to you me and Jonna was the was our um, apprenticeship scheme that we had and so you're taking young artists you're teaching them everything that we've learned over the years and we've had three successful um, apprentices come through graffiti life who now are like incredible artists who can do amazing stuff with the spray can and we were only able to pay their rent every week by 
keep like continuing to get the money. And so there was there was loads of meaning in what we were doing there. I suppose just like thinking about it even deeper, I suppose does meaning then mean by helping other people improve their lives? Like are you helping other people? Can you have meaning if no other people are involved? Because it's like when I think about like the photos, it's like there I'm helping other people pursue what they need to do there and helping them achieve their dreams. And I think with this podcast, we're helping people try and realize what it is they want to do and turn that into a career. And I think it's always trying to help someone else achieve what they want to achieve. I feel like that's for me, maybe that's just what my internal meaning is. It's like, that's what my purpose, I suppose, is, is to help other people achieve what they want to achieve. Yeah. And and you and me are so aligned on on so many things, and and I think the reason the podcast has been going for so long is because we both have a very shared goal with what we're trying to do with the show. I'm sure there are people who write poetry in a secret book that then gets put in a drawer and no one ever reads it, but it's therapeutic and cathartic, and it's something for them, and they find meaning in that work. I think sharing your work with the world though is there's some there is something beautiful about that and impacting people. It's it's interesting, isn't it? I, I know that Yona, for example, has no interest in impacting the wider world, but a very, very dedicated, like passionate almost need to benefit the people that are like within our team, the, the her close friends and our members of staff. Whereas for me, it's like, I love getting a, a DM from someone that I've never met before or or someone in the street shouting out David who I've never seen them before, but they know me because of my artwork. Like I get a huge amount of um, validation from that, not because I want them to think I'm cool, but like I just, I do really love it when they say like, I, I like your work because it makes me happy. That is hugely motivating for me. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. And I feel like I am completely aligned with that because it's like, I would happily meet someone for the first time and then give them a few hours of my time for me to help them with whatever they want to do. Like the amount of DMs I've got on Instagram from people who are studying or are just starting a career in photography and they're like, oh, I've got a couple of questions and I'm just like, oh, let's have a call. And I end up talking to them for like an hour or two, just giving them all of this advice. And it's like, actually for me, like there's, I'm not getting any form of like physical reward for this. It's just there's meaning in it for me. And it's almost like I'm, I'm getting something more than just the, oh, here's some money for this. So, oh, here's like, I'm going to get you into this place. It's like someone who might never, ever make a difference in my life or my career. And most of these people, I probably wouldn't even remember their names or if they kind of got back in touch, I would be like, oh, have I spoke to that person before? But within that moment, it was so important and it had so much meaning and I just was so dedicated to it. I think that's why I love Access, our monthly get-together on Zoom. Um, if you listening right now want to come to Access, you can go to creativerebels.co forward slash access and you'll get a free ticket every time we do one. But those sessions is like, it's hands-on. It's us helping creatives and entrepreneurs directly with a problem that they're having. And the energy that we have for that is so huge. And we always, like it's supposed to be an hour and we always go an hour and 20 minutes, hour and a half, because we get that question where we just start rolling and we're like, oh, but have you tried this? Have you thought about this? And there's something in that where, where I love when I know someone's got, there's a problem that they're facing and they go to me, oh, I've got this problem. And you can see that they can't see a way out of it. And then we go, well, I know what the answer to that is. So I can relieve you mm. of that problem. And all you have to do then is just put the action into the things that I've told you to do. Whether they then go and do that is a whole other matter. And that comes down to their motivations to like wrap it all together and be really meta. But serving others, whether it's like on a grand scale, because there's, I know that there are hundreds of people that listen to this show who we have helped a buttload who we will never, ever hear from. And they haven't even left us an iTunes review. I mean, how dare they? But... <laughs> There's also the people that we talk to on a regular basis who whenever they have a problem, they'll send us a DM. But it's like knowing that that this show is out there and people are are find uh, like a find uh, knowing that people are finding motivation from it, that it's solving their problems, that to me is a is a huge motivator. It's funny, this was um such a the motivation part is is just a small part of Rebecca's book, and the whole book is loaded with so much stuff uh like like that. Um 
it is really a book that I recommend everyone go and check out. Um, I'd also check out Rebecca's podcast as well. Yeah, that's uh, Rebecca's podcast called uh, The Solo Collective, which if you enjoy this episode, I definitely recommend you go and check out. And yeah, her book, it is one of those books where, like obviously we interview a lot of authors on this show, but this is one of those ones I was just like, holy fuck, this is so good. Like there's so many good nuggets in this and the way it's broken down, it's, it's about solo work as a whole, but I think it goes into so much more than that. And I think so many people can take away benefits from, from the book and from this episode. Yeah, so Rebecca got in touch with me after we did the episode and said, can I put what you said about my book um, in the cover of the new print of it? And I was like, yes, you can. Um, Because I said some very strong words about, uh, I basically said this is the best book on work that I've ever read. And that is 100% true. So I do really think that people will enjoy this episode. Uh, We got a great deal from it. So Rebecca Seal, the genius, here we go. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the show. We have quite a lot of authors on the show, and I often feel after sort of listening to an episode that our listeners don't need to go out and buy the book a lot of times because we've kind of covered the main You've got the thrust gist. of, of yeah. what, whatever it is they're trying to get across. Yeah, which I kind of, which I kind I really like. I like sort of being able to sh- save money for the listeners. However, your new book is the best book on work that I have read. Whoa. Um, and that's not on solo work. That is on work full stop. I I mean, I knew based on our first conversation that it was going to be it was going to be good because you were in the middle of researching it and we had some amazing chats about like cavemen and, and it went all over the place. It was such a good chat. So I knew it was going to be a good book. But dude, honestly, I was blown away by how thorough and like you just covered every single aspect. It's incredible. Wow, thank you. I, I really feel like I might cry after that. Thank you. That's, that's so lovely to hear because um, it was so, so much hard work and such an, a sort of leap in the dark for me in terms of topic. So I really had no idea when I handed it in whether it was like great or dreadful or mediocre or what really so thank you that means a huge amount well it's almost come at like the perfect time as well because i think when we spoke last it was pre the world going to shit and everything Mm -hmm. was like you were talking about this book the research you were doing and i think that's where a lot of our conversation stemmed from last time was the research that we you were kind of touching on and we were fascinated by that and we kind of went down that that route but yeah it seems to have come at the time when the world needed that the most how has that been in like transitioning? Because obviously when you started the book, you had no idea that this was going to be the case. How did you kind of then adapt that to fit the world that we all ended up living in for the past year? Yeah, that was that was weird and difficult. The weird sort of synchronicity of the book and the pandemic have, has led a few people to say, where were you in November 2019 and what were you doing? Like, did you kind of proceed the pandemic? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> which I obviously did not. Um, no, I'm but, glad you clarified uh, that just because. I was <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I finished writing it in the first lockdown. Um, I think I did about six weeks of writing in that lockdown. Um, it was really weird. I mean, obviously it was like the weirdest time for all of us, but it was a really odd thing because it was, it felt, it felt important to kind of think about all the people who were being thrown into exactly the kind of difficult working environments that I had wanted to help people with. But also I had no idea how long it would go on for. Um, You know, I think we all thought it would be a matter of weeks. And so I didn't want to go too far into the kind of pandemic stuff, but I wanted to do enough to make it relevant for for this year, because it actually wasn't meant to be published until last month. We only realised, me and my publisher, after I had finished it, that actually this was probably going to last and probably would be a really useful book for right now. And so they pulled out all the stops and were amazing and brought it forward to September last year. That kind of changed everything again because it was completely, that was a completely unexpected bit of scheduling for me. Um, and I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't have very much time to prepare. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's just felt really weird. It's felt really good to be useful um, I've given loads of talks and workshops and, um, uh, you know, provided material for charities and really massive organisations. And I've done tiny workshops for people who work by themselves, like three people at a time. Um, and they've they've all felt like a really, really useful thing to do, um, and which is lovely. But the whole thing's been quite mind blowing, mind bending, perhaps, because mm. um, because of the context, I think. 
because you, you, it's quite hard to celebrate something good coming out of something horrific. I think I've got to read it again because you made me, you've really made me question a lot of things that are, and I, and I think it's probably the same with you as you were probably writing the book, but things that are so fundamentally part of us that are perhaps ingrained into us because of culture. And, and you even talked about how religion has shaped work even if you're not a religious person, we still feel the after effects of like to work is to be holy. And I mean, this podcast is the hard work podcast. It's like we advocate hard work so much and you're really, like you really helped me sit with that and actually think about what it is I'm trying to get people to do. And I think maybe we need to reframe this as the, the like the find happiness podcast as opposed to the just work for, just work, work, just keep working. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's complicated because um, I, I don't want to kind of denigrate hard work. I don't, I don't think hard work is a bad thing. Um, and a lot of what I have is because of hard work. It's also because I'm privileged and I'm white and I'm middle class and I've had some luck. Um, so I don't want to pretend that's anything other than than the case. But um, but I have. I have also worked hard and I continue to work fairly hard. I mean, I still only do a four day only, shouldn't say that. I still do a four day week. Um, so by some measures, I work less hard than I, than, than some people do. Um, so it, it's not work, you know, working hard comes with great satisfaction sometimes. And I guess the difficulty that I have more broadly with the idea of hard work is the idea that, that it should have primacy, I guess, that it's the, that work becomes the most important thing about you and in some ways the only thing about you and I feel as though there's some sort of societal cultural thing at at the moment where work is like the dominant factor in our personalities Mm. and there are very few people for whom that is a satisfying arrangement there are some yeah uh and that's fine but it's it's for a lot of us it's sort of it squeezes out the opportunity to have any kind of richer sort of life. Um, and you find yourself just kind of um, catapulting between work and maybe getting drunk and, you know, like, I don't know. It's just there are so few opportunities th- if you view life through that lens to have the rest of the good things in life. I think it's interesting, actually, because when you think about meeting people at a party or someone you've never met before, the, generally the first question that people ask is, oh, so if you don't know them, oh, so what do you do? And quite often mm. it's like, I feel like I ask that question because I almost want to have that. Because it's one, generally if I ask other creative people, you can en- end up having this really fun conversation if people are fulfilled in what they're doing day to day. But quite often you'll meet someone who maybe isn't happy in what they're doing day to day. And then they'll say something like, oh, oh, I'm only an accountant or oh, I only do this. I, I own, they kind of put this negative, you instantly get the fact that they don't, they don't enjoy what they do and they don't really want to talk about it. But that is kind of how as a society we kind of label people or even judge people on that first thing because yeah. i imagine if someone if you said oh i'm if you met someone at a party and you're like oh i'm unemployed i don't really do anything you would instantly put your own perceptions on what that person's like as a character whereas if someone said Absolutely. i'm a lawyer or doctor then you're like oh well you're gonna obviously work really long you literally you come up with this whole perception about someone before you even get to know them yeah i 100 think that's true um i try quite hard now on the very rare occasions where I meet somebody new, <laughs> um, I, I try quite hard to think of other questions to ask. Um, and something I quite often say when I give talks about this is we, you know, we linguistically have a problem in English when we talk about our jobs because we, we say, I am a writer, like I am a journalist. Um, we make it, it's a, it's a linguistic oddity which makes it very much who we are um and i think we slightly need to escape from that because actually we 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 do our jobs but they aren't actually us Here we are. yeah, they yeah. Aren't. And, and 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 we change so much throughout the course of our lives and the way that we work changes so much and i've talked to so many people recently and, and henry holland actually did an interview on my podcast um about this uh who, he was really insightful about it but i meet people where, where something's ended and the impact that that kind of linguistic oddity has on your sense of identity and your, your personality is so massive. And I suspect that if we didn't talk about work in quite those terms and we didn't have a philosophy of work, which was so about it being actually a part of us, um, 
then I think we might find those things a bit easier. Maybe that would also mean we'd have like our highs wouldn't be so high when work does go well. Maybe it would be a more sort of moderated experience of work. And maybe that's a downside for some people. But I feel as though we haven't even had the conversation about how we want to think about ourselves and the work that we do. So to clarify that, is that if you say I am a writer, but currently you're not working on any books and you're not doing any writing, then then you feel of less of a person because... Yeah, so, so there's interesting research on exactly that. And it's particularly true for people who work for themselves. Um, so I interviewed a professor um, for, for the book, um, whose name is temporarily lost, left my head, but um, I, I interviewed this professor and she was saying that because she's employed specifically as a professor, she doesn't have to do anything professory and she's still a professor, yeah. right? Mm. She still has a nameplate on her door that says she's a professor. She still gets emails and she still has business cards. Um, but she could not do anything for half a year and that wouldn't, that wouldn't change. She might get fired, but the, the, the facts of, around the job wouldn't change. Whereas if I don't have any writing to do for half a year, yeah, that impacts on my sense of self massively. And it would impact on yeah. her sense of self if she were to be fired. Um, so obviously it, it can happen to all of us. But, but the research seems to, seems to suggest that, that that kind of identity tangle uh, is particularly true for people who work by, by themselves. If we're, if we're kind of looking for some form of like purpose or something that we're striving towards, work seems like for a lot of people that it's like this forced purpose that's put on us. It's like you don't need to have something that is something you want to achieve in the world. It's you, someone being told, okay, well, you go and do this every day. And then that kind of gives people a reason to do things. But it's not, it's almost, yeah, it feels like it's forced on people rather than it's actually something that they've asked themselves. Well, what do I want? What do I want to achieve? What is success yeah, to me? Exactly. And that's precisely the pinch point that I was at when I came up with the idea for Solo in the first place, because I'd worked really hard at school. I'd worked really hard at university. I'd worked hard to get to a good university. And then I'd done it, I'd done a kind of quote, good degree. And um, and then I wanted a job that was um, sort of visibly successful and mm -hmm. journalism. I mean, I tried other things as well. And let's say let's say the world of international organizations just didn't want me. And that was where I thought I was going to go <laughs> first. And then, I, and, then I, and then I and then I and then I struck lucky with journalism. Um, but, you know, it's a it's a visible career. It's it's quite a. Um, you know, it's a thing to talk about at parties and it interests other people. And mm. and I, you know, really, really kind of analysing myself. I understand now that I wanted that. I needed that. I needed a kind of um, something a bit showy, uh, but was sort of also pseudo intellectual and all of that stuff. Like it, there was a whole parcel of, of motivations that didn't really come from me. I mean, I love what I do and I'm very lucky to have landed where I've landed. But what I do know is that a huge amount of the motivations that got me to this point were layers and layers of expectation from my family, from my parents, from the school that I went to. I went to a very, very ordinary school and, and me and a few other people, well, we, we happened to be very high achievers. And that meant a lot to the school because we could be points on a graph that they just didn't normally get. So they did everything they could to funnel us in particular directions, um, you know, Oxbridge or, or whatever. And, and I can totally see how that happened, but it was really bad for me because it just meant that I, I kind of, sheepled my way through <laughs> um, my the end of my school and, and did a load of things that people expected me to do, but didn't make me happy. Um, and then carry up, you know, fast forward, like six years into my career as a journalist, I go freelance, and then I spend another six years just working in pursuit of, of status and success, and never saying no to anything. Always um, working incredibly long hours, really neglecting all sorts of relationships outside of work. And, um, you know, being living with my um, then boyfriend, now husband, uh, who was, had a very similar mindset at that point, too, we were just we were grafting. And to a degree, that makes sense. We were in our 20s and, you know, it, it, it's paid off in some sort of career ways. But the point at which I decided to write the book, which is about seven years ago now, I was so unhappy. I was so lonely. I was so, so miserable. I was really unhappy in my work. Didn't feel like it had any point or purpose. I, I couldn't work out why I, I, you know, I'd worked so hard to get to this point, like so many hours um, and so many compromises and sacrifices. And, and, and I just looked up one day and was like, this isn't, this isn't what I wanted. I have no idea what I do want, mm. but this isn't it. This, this, this life where there's nothing but work and even the work doesn't feel very satisfactory. That was the that was the beginning of the train of thought, which ultimately resulted mm. in me thinking, I bet there are other people who feel this way. 
And, and where did that transition come from? So once you're in this position of, I feel unhappy, I don't know what I actually want from life. What was your process then of discovering or like, I'm assuming you're still on that journey or maybe you're kind of settled where you are now, but what were the kind of steps that you went from there? So for example, if someone's in that situation now and they're feeling a bit kind of lost, they don't really know what to do. They feel a bit purposeless, a bit meaningless, like what would your advice be to them? And they're saying yes to everything. I think that's yeah. the key thing is like they they won't like it's the 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 terrifying notion of saying saying no to something. Yeah. So learning to say no is a really critical part. But in order to say no, you have to know what you want to say yes to. So that was the thing I had to sit down and work out with myself. And yeah, that is an ongoing conversation. So I do stuff where I um I, I sit down with a big bit of paper and I sort of write about how I'd like my life to look in 10 years time. And then I sort of back plan, as it were, from that point to try and make to make it clearer what my choices might be. So I don't know if I wanted to move house, then obviously I would work harder to earn more money. I would make specific choices about money if if I had, you know, a drive in that direction. As it goes, I want to spend more time with my kids and more time with my friends. So I'm interested in making choices which allow me to maintain my four day week um and travel less for example i mean obviously not really traveling at the moment at all but i was traveling a lot um and and actually i mean perversely i thought that i wanted to write about restaurants a lot because my my other career as it were is in food and drink writing um and i thought i wanted to write about restaurants because that's the kind of um the highest status aspect of food writing but that takes me away from my home and my family and it makes me uh, unhealthy <laughs> in all the actual, you know, the real ways and the, and the kind of mental health ways too. And it means that you spend an awful lot of time with people you don't really know. Um, you go to a lot of events and a lot of parties. And, and I thought that was what I wanted because on paper, it sounds kind of great. But what I, what I realized was if you've got a map of what you want your life to look like, then it's easier to, to think, well, that doesn't actually fit. So I think that's the first thing you have to do is is have a clear idea of what you want your life to look like. And you can't think of work and life as two separate things. You've got to put it all in one place. I don't know, you've got to, well, for me, I found it really useful to be really kind of ambitious and grand in scope, but also very, very micro. I realised that one of the things that was making me unhappy was that I was always so busy that I never had time to get my hair cut. <laughs> and I bleach my hair, so it looks really crap if it's left for too long. <laughs> and so there's things on this bit of paper where it's like, get a haircut regularly because I know that that helps my mental health and my well-being, And it, it's a micro, micro thing. But then there was also bigger stuff like have a great marriage. And I do have a great marriage, but I know that over the next 10 years, I've got to put some stuff in to make sure that that continues to be the case. And other stuff that I didn't, you know, I didn't really realise I, that I wanted to figure out how to make my kids feel really good about themselves as they become young adults. And like, you know, I didn't, until you put it all down on a bit of paper, you just don't know this stuff about yourself. And I think, again, societally, culturally, whatever it is, socially, we don't really teach people to do that. We don't say to 18 year olds or 16 year olds, like, write, write, write down what you'd like. Not like, I'd like to be made partner by the time I'm 30. But like, yeah. what is it that's important to you? What sort of space do you want to live in? Do you want to be in a city? Do you not want to be in a city? I mean, maybe it's too early for someone to do that. Maybe 25 would be a better point. But I was like nearly 30 by the time I sat down and thought, what What do I want? What? I think what you're saying there as well about how if you're at some point, you might be going for a house at this point. Now you're like, OK, well, I'm going to spend more time with my kids the things that you want are going to change and I think that's an important oh, yeah. thing to remember as well the fact that yeah when obviously when you I feel like when you're younger your only vision of the future is what do you want to be when you grow up what is your final mm -hmm. aim for where you want to be you don't ever think of broadly like how am I going to get there or like okay well if this is no. where maybe one day I see my life going that's only based on what your current situation is and how you you've lived up until this point but that might change and I think that's where it's nice to have if this is where I'm going to be in 10 years, then breaking that down into shorter things to be like, okay, this is the next part yeah. of that. This is the next part of that. And then constantly reassessing of like, am I actually doing what I want? Because I think it's quite easy to get kind of fall back into the river of the way that everyone else is going, the way that society is pushing Absolutely. it. And being constantly saying like, am I heading in the direction rather than just being like, cool, I've written down this thing on a piece of paper, that part's done. 
and now I'm just going to kind of yeah. go along with that. So I have friends who do um, do it every January. They, 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 they've got something that they call the January book. Um, and they every like every January, they fill out a big page and they look back over the previous ones to see whether they're kind of moving in the direction that they want to. Um, and that's led them to make some really massive sort of life changing decisions because they've just had this opportunity to sit down and and think where the majority of the time we're just hamster wheeling it along without any sense of of what the micro decisions that we make all the time are leading to. Um, and I, I, you know, I think that was one of the key parts of the book. The learning for me in the book was that we make choices all the time. And I felt like I didn't have any choices seven years ago. I felt I felt completely squashed and as though everything was kind of, um, you know, I was deadline, deadline to deadline. Yeah, just didn't feel as though there was any room for me to kind of um, cu- curate, for want of a better word, the way that my work and my life was looking. And actually, that was rubbish because you've got you make choices all the time and the 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 thing i say about it in the book is like if you choose to work in your pajamas all day because you've chosen a life where you work from home and that makes you feel happy and relaxed and luxurious and that's and that works for you then brilliant but there are so many choices of that sort that we make without thinking where you get out of bed and you start panic working in your pajamas because you're so worried about how much you've got to do and then you look up and it's three o'clock and you haven't had any lunch and you're still in your pajamas and you feel grubby and you feel horrible that was still a choice it was one that was kind of um obscured by your panic but it, it it's still a choice and there are micro choices of that sort all the way through our days and all the way through our working lives um and it it, it doesn't there isn't a right or a wrong choice as such there are just there just needs to be an awareness that we're always making choices about the direction that we're that we're moving in and again i feel as though that's something which doesn't really that's not a story that gets told when we're kind of talking about work and i or life as a whole i don't think that it's a facility that we equip younger people with when they come into um the work environment i I just think we just we treat people a little bit like um cogs i guess and we just, you know, we just slot them in and expect them to carry on without wearing out. And it's just unrealistic. It's not going to happen. That's where mental health problems come from. And Yeah, I think culturally we need to change a, a lot of the discussions because if we were to ask my sister to do the January exercise, it would be, every decision would be around money. And she, she needs, she needs to know like what job she's going to be getting and how much she's going to be paid and, and how, what house she's going to buy and all of this stuff like that is her 100% primary driver. Um, but I, I think that's because, and I mean, I try my best, but I think that's just because the the conversations around happiness are not, are not widespread mm. enough. Um, and there's this fear and panic and scarcity mindset of, and, and the fact that money is always seen as the most important thing. Um, and I think it's, it's so hard, isn't it? Because I know there'll be people listening that don't have any, mm. And certainly Adam and I can really relate to the point when we started our business, when we were surviving off of coppers. And I know what that, that struggle is like. So it's so impossible to get, like, if you, if you go back and tell young Adam and David to not worry about the money and just, yeah. just it'll all be fine and go after your happiness. I mean, like, what, <laughs> like, what do you want me to hippie. do with that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah so and, and all of that is true, but I guess we need to moderate that stuff in that um, that period of time will be a finite period of time where you might need to really work very hard in pursuit of, of money and and, um, and some kind of standing in your in your industry. But it's it's the fact that that gets taken forward into the rest of our careers and we find it difficult to shed that's I think the bit of the conversation that we need to have maybe more urgently like once you've got enough then you can kind of take your foot off the pedal um and I, and I think that notion of enough is a really difficult one for mm. people to get their head around mm. um but one of the things which I think is really interesting is this um big piece of research I'm sure you've probably heard about before the um uh, earnings and well-being ceiling have you come across this yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. You know, we're not looking that 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 ceiling for anyone who hasn't um, heard about it already is the idea that there's a there's a, a very clear increase in well-being as your income rises up to 
somewhere between 48,000 and 60,000 pounds, I think it is in the UK. And, and the, the, the ceiling varies depending um, on which country you're in, you know, and what the kind of relative average earnings are. But, but it's there. And it, you know, 48,000 pounds a year is a lot of money to earn. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm not suggesting it's the average or anything like that. But it's also not 2 million. It's not a kind of absolutely unattainable level of income. And there are a lot of people who are earning a lot more than that who are still desperately scrabbling for more, 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 um, and still sort of believe that it will make more will make them happier um, when that's just absolutely not true. And I think that's that that message hasn't really also hasn't really got out widely enough that 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 money can make you happy, but only a bit, and yeah. only so far. <laughs> yeah, I suppose in society um, we're, then, we're so driven by celebrity, like seeing these people who earn millions, and it's like it almost feels like growing up that's what you're aiming for it's like well that's that's the ceiling when i hit that level where you're earning a million pounds and yeah it's i think we spend so much of our life getting to that whereas if there was a more of a conversation around your aim in life is earn seventy thousand pounds that's the top where you need to possibly aim for for your happiness to be where yeah. it needs to be for be and i think people would suddenly yeah. actually relax a bit because I think if you're putting 110% in, I hate that phrase, if you're putting 100% in every day and that's going to, because you think you're aiming for a million and you'll keep going for that and keep going for that. Actually, by dropping down to 90%, having a lot more kind of relaxation, happiness in your life, but you're only aiming for 70,000. I say 70, only 70, it's still a lot of money. But it's like, I think that put things into a completely different context of what's achievable. And I think from this, because no one, very, very few people will ever earn over, say, £100,000, I'm sure, if you look at the percentages across the country. So it's realising mm. that most people live happily at this thing. So maybe that should be our target. Yeah, I think all of that is right. I think that we we get this very skewed version of, of reality through, um, well, primarily through social media, um, but also just media in general, uh, that suggests that, that rich people are happier than we are. And that's just, it's just fundamentally not true. When you get to a certain point of richness, and I wish I could remember the number because it's not very high. I think it might be over 150. I think it's, it starts to bottom out. I think it starts to drop back down again. And there's certainly a lot of data to show that millionaires are statistically much more unhappy than the rest of us. Um, and no one's quite sure exactly why that is, whether it's like the responsibility of that money or the guilt or um, just the kind of complexity of managing something like that, or, or, the, or the demands that are put on you by people around you, or what it is. But there does seem to be um, to be that does seem to be a real problem. And um, Dr. Laurie Santos, who's um, brilliant on happiness and is at Yale, she did a podcast, and I think it was entitled "The Unhappy Millionaire," um, and it was it was all about this exact problem. Um, and so everybody should go and listen to it because it's uh, after this one, obviously, um, <laughs> because it's it, it deals with this exact kind of um, difficulty that we have where we just have in our minds a, a kind of upwards a, an upwards line that relates yeah. to money and happiness and it's it's just not true yeah there was a really interesting episode of your podcast that you did with the with the lady that was talking about Beyonce I can't remember oh um Rahaf uh, Hafish yeah. yeah like there was some really interesting insights in there and and remembering that we, what we do is we see Beyonce the brand let's say what it is it's a brand yeah. and we attribute that to being one person and we don't kind of realize that there are hundreds of people that go to make up the Beyonce brand and that yeah this this unrealistic vision of what a celebrity is or what a famous person or, or a rich wealthy person is it's like there's there's I mean almost never are they going to be just one person on their own I mean I'll go out and say never will they be just one person on their own no no definitely not definitely not not in the way that we are on our own in what we do really like i don't you know they're just they they might be the front and it might feel that they're very much alone i can imagine it would feel quite lonely being in their position um but no they're they're part of massive teams and the other thing that rahaf pointed out was that um beyonce took half a year off without anyone really noticing or knowing um because she was really knackered and burned out and we, you know, she didn't, 
and fairly so. She didn't put that on social media. I mean, she might have done actually, but like it it didn't become a massive topic of conversation. We we just think Beyonce, hard work, loads of success, never stops, keeps on grafting. Um, And and again, it's it's a myth. It's just it's it's rubbish. It's a yeah, it's a really, really pernicious and dangerous myth, actually, I think. You mentioned earlier the the choices that we make and there's a really, I suppose it's probably the most controversial point in the book where you, I almost fell off my ladder as I was painting, <laughs> where you, you really like go after the listener and you're like, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that chapter, the decision to put that in? The kind, the bravery of, because I'm sure there's going to be some pushback of people going, well, how dare you tell me that, that these choices I'm making, that I'm burnt out and it's my fault. <laughs> I mean, it probably I would write it slightly differently now. I, would, I still stand by everything that I said, but I also think that there is a slightly um, tricky element to that conversation around, um, around burnout and choice um, in that as I've said earlier, like the social cultural pressures and expectations around us can feel so overwhelming that it can be very difficult to make the positive choices that we need to make. Plus, I think, and and Rahaf Harfouche said this, and um, a couple of other people that I've interviewed for the podcast as well have, have made the point that it's really dangerous to put too much of it onto the individual. We need to, we need to allow, um, allow for the fact that these are big, kind of social problems that overarch all of us and we have to deal with them as such. However, <laughs> I do <laughs> I do still stand by it because I, I, I've hoped that by the time I got to that point in the book, because I think it's about two thirds of the way in, um, that I'd set up the stuff about understanding what is a choice and, and what's not um, and, and, and kind of taking responsibility for the saying yes to everything aspect of, of particularly solo working. Um, I did think it was important because I've been called out on it so many times by my mum, like for saying yes to too much and, and, and being really overwhelmed and annoying as it is, she's not wrong. Like it's only me saying yes. And I'm the only person watching my career. Like I, I am the only person with oversight of it. And I am the only person who really frankly cares. Um, nobody else does and nobody else knows when I say yes or no obviously the individual client does but um, I think as well there's something about getting older and understanding that if you're if you're if you're decent at what you do and you don't have to be amazing at it you just have to do it to the brief and deliver on time people will come back to you again even if you say no and that obviously that's a question of experience but um, but it it, it it's a, once you've learned that lesson, it becomes slightly easier to say no. But but yeah, I do I do still stand by that. But I'm sorry if you nearly fell off your ladder. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's really interesting. So as you were saying that there, and you, you said the words responsible, it made me think about if you're an alcoholic, it's kind of like you've got into this situation, and it's like, do you blame the individual or do you blame the alcohol companies who are putting out the adverts? And then you think about those adverts where they have to say drink responsibly on them, and then gambling adverts are the same. You're kind of stuck in this addiction, which I feel like work can be some form of addiction as well Mm. and yeah the gambling adverts will always say stop when the fun stops there's always like some caveat of like when it stops being fun or when it stops when it gets a bit too much stop but no one ever says to like work responsibly (laughs) no and also those things are like a really good example of the individualization of the problem the gambling industry as a whole isn't taking and the alcohol industry as a whole isn't actually taking full responsibility for for the the harm that those industries can um enable let's say um they're just saying oh this is on you now this is on you you make Mm. that decision so so I guess that's what I'm meaning about that tension is that I'm aware that I'm sort of falling into that trap a bit when I when I talk in that way but at the same time I do think we have we do have to take personal responsibility for the way that our working lives are created because nobody else is going to um you know you're not going to manage the 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 way that my career operates and our clients aren't going to and our bosses aren't if we're remote workers um we're the only people that can do that so as much as possible i want to sort of help facilitate and enable people to to do that to make good choices to and to know to to have conversations with themselves which which help them to know what those choices might look like if you want them to be good because as we were saying earlier like without some sense of that it's you know you can't make those choices so it's it's all part of the same sort of 
oh, I don't know, what is it? It's like a soup of <laughs> complicated um, ideas that we have to sort of try and pull pull the good bits out of. It is a soup. And, and so much of this show, we talk about becoming really good at something. Mm. And I think as soon as you get yourself into that position that you are the go-to, you are the expert, and you're offering something that people can't get somewhere else, that's when you are able to relax. I, I found so much with my my sort of most recent career move that I, I was bringing so much of my previous work life with it. And it's been a slow learning process of, of going, hang on, there is only one of me. I'm the only person that paints in this style. If you want it, then you're going to have to work to my schedule rather than I'm I'm very used to from our company days of going the client is is pulling the strings yeah. they are the puppet master when they say jump we say how high yeah we have competitors and they can go elsewhere however now that i'm established as as a solo artist that just just does this one thing i'm the i'm the like i'm the only game in town baby <laughs> it's like if you want it you've got to wait for yeah. it yeah 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 and i think that's a critical place to get to but also having a level of understanding of yourself where you sit in that way is really it's, it's, it's difficult to achieve, but it's really worth trying to do. Like, so today at lunchtime, my husband's um, photography studio is in the same um, like industrial estate as, as my office where I am now. And um, they were doing a shoot and I, I know everyone on the shoot. So I just wandered in at about lunchtime in the hope that they might feed me. And they did. <laughs> um, and we got, we got to, <laughs> yeah, which was great. But we got to talking about um, Christmas in July because it, it's, um, that's a thing in the food industry. All the Christmas stuff gets done in July and lots of other um, creative industries too and the food stylist who I'd not met before um, was saying that he he doesn't really get asked to do any Christmas stuff and he wasn't saying it in a kind of like poor me sort of way he just said I, I'm not I don't think I'm very Christmas sometimes people get me to do alternative Christmas and he's got these amazing tattoos so I can see that he's like probably quite um, kind of alternative I just thought how brilliant at the, at the time that he said it I was like how brilliant to not think why don't I get any Christmas why don't I get the Christmas gigs? Because they're quite sought after and, and they get talked about a lot and they're big and, you know, fancy and extravagant. And they're actually quite nightmarish because it's always really hot and it's not much fun doing like basting a turkey when it's that hot. Um, and, and yeah, I thought it was a really, it was a really interesting moment. And you're basically saying the same thing, that if you figure out what you're good at and what you can do and sell really well, then you're going to worry a lot less about the stuff that you don't get that stuff becomes much less frightening if you know that this is this is your thing. It doesn't have to be that you can't do anything else ever, but that this is your thing. This is this is what makes you you and you marketable. Um, then you just carry on doing that, and you're not going to worry about whether you get Christmas in July or not because it's irrelevant. You've got loads of other cool stuff going on. So for the book, you've you've interviewed some really interesting people um, who spend a lot of time working on their own. The the most interesting sort of version of that and I like it's such genius it's I so obvious but I just wouldn't have thought of it is you interviewed an explorer yeah well two actually technically um because I interviewed um Anna who is an explorer and Leveson Wood who is um a yeah, tv yeah. explorer um but yeah um and Leveson actually was quite upfront and was like you know I don't actually do these things on my own like I take a tv crew yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> but he has done a lot of exploring by himself but um but yeah um she was really, she was so interesting, the way that she had trained herself effectively to spend more time by herself. Um, and, and the way that she was so sort of in tune with the way that nature affects our moods before, like this was, you know, she was thinking about this stuff a good few years before biophilic design became a thing and everybody had millions of plants in their houses and all of that. She she was very aware on a personal level of what she needed to do to maintain her own well-being um, in terms of being outside. So it's like a really, yeah, it's not a surprise that she became an explorer, really, given that she had that that knowledge. Um, but but yeah, it felt it felt like the right the right kind of person to, <laughs> to talk to, like someone who's tracking in extreme circumstances by themselves would surely have something to say to someone who sits at a desk on their own feeling <laughs> feeling bereft. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my my main takeaway because I love stuff like that. I love that that sort of human. It's it's just you on your own, and you're the only person that you can rely on. And I suppose like exploring is because we are all doing that when we're working. If if we are a solo worker, but 
But I just think there's something like being put in those extreme situations. Like I just, I all, have always found it fascinating. Like the last time we spoke, you you said something that really unlocked for me that I've quoted to a million people since. And, and that was just that if you're choosing to be on your own, then you're you're not going to feel any sort of uh, mental health effects from it because it's a positive thing because you're choosing to be on your own and I choose to be on my own like quite a lot of the time um and because it, it was really worrying me not like seeing all the data on like being alone is a bit really bad for your mental health unless it's a choice to be on your own and that was that was a real big unlock for me but I think the the thing that I got out of your chat with the explorer is is the training I find that so fascinating that like there, there really is nothing that we can't train ourselves to do. If you can train yourself to be on your own, it's like if you put someone in solitary confinement, that's like the worst punishment on the planet. We're so, like humans are so amazing that if we are smart and we train ourselves, then we can actually do that and we could survive it. it it's like a, like a David Blaine thing of like going to real extremes yeah. of how far we can push our, our body and psyche. Yeah, definitely. I don't think anyone should go in the David Blaine direction, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, that's definitely, that's definitely true. So the way that Anna did it was that she would expose herself gradually to more and more solitary time. Um, and, and I, I think that that is so useful and so possible. And it's certainly something that I've done. I've got more into, um, spending time outside by myself and, and, and making it more of a conscious choice and kind of reveling in it a bit more um, as a as a way to, yeah, I don't know, just kind of encourage a sense of peace with it, I suppose, just a, 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 and a sense that actually sometimes the only person I need is me. I don't, I don't need loads of other people. I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it feels like you're just being definitive about things. So you're, because you mentioned earlier, like, wanting to have these strong relationships with your husband and like spending time with your kids so that they become the human beings that you think they can become. So it's like, you're just being more definite yeah. of like, I'm choosing now to spend time with my family. I'm choosing now to spend time on my own. And it's, it's, um, it's more organized than just letting things yeah. fly around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably the biggest impact on my life that the book has had is that it, it, there's a lot less drift it's organised, but only up to a point. For example, we've started doing a thing where in our like online calendar, we have weekends where it just says keep free and there's nothing in the weekend. That's like a post-pandemic thing, or hopefully post-pandemic thing, um, because we realised that actually before the pandemic, we were just cramming so much in. So it's not, yeah. it's not so much that we are, or I am, organising more, but I'm leaving space in, in my time to, to do those things, to be by myself. And so if, if, if that day that says keep free um, feels like the day where I want to go for a walk by myself, say, or read a book or whatever, there's much more likelihood that it'll actually happen because yeah. I'm not sort of swamped with other stuff, other responsibilities or expectations. Yeah, I think having that foresight of being like, okay, well, what things are the most important to me and making sure that they go in the calendar first and everything, everything else mm. around that, I think it's a much more healthy way to do it, especially like when it comes to blocking out weekends. Because yeah, I found that like throughout like the majority of lockdown, we couldn't go anywhere on the weekends i was like well i might as well work because i wasn't just gonna be sat around not really doing much so quite often i just work saturdays as well because it was uh, like, well next week will be easier if i work saturday too because it means i've got less to do then and you kind of just get into this cycle of it but now it's got to the stage you know, where it's like coming out and i'm like okay well i'm going to make sure i don't book in certain things late on these days of the week so it means i can go see my friends which is something that i used to do and is, i've started doing again now and even the yeah, weekends, making sure I don't book anything for those. And um, mm -hmm. my girlfriend has every other Friday off work. So now I'm going to start taking every other Friday off at the same time. So we can go and do things. And it would just be like remembering that actually that's what's most important to me. Making sure that I fit those around, fit, fit work around my life rather than trying to find yeah. little bits of time to like catch her. Yeah, exactly. Like that's what I'd like. I'd like to get that on t-shirts, like fit, fit work around your life. Like that isn't what we're kind of expected to do really I think at the moment yeah, particularly yeah, yeah. post-pandemic because I think you know work has just like expanded to fill these cracks and niches in our lives where they where it didn't have the right to be and smartphones make that much worse of course um but I think we've got to we've got to fight against that and actually I'm very optimistic I see a lot of people making really brilliant positive changes so I don't I don't think that we're we're actually kind of doomed on this stuff but I do think it's important to to 
to do that, to say, you know, yeah, I can actually take every other Friday off. I can totally do that. That's totally fine. The world will not end. I will not lose all my clients. Um, nobody will even notice probably like, um, and, and then the wellbeing benefit is so huge to doing that, that it's just, it's magical. Yeah. I mean, you put all of this, all of those stats in the book about how the, the less we work, the more productive we are and the more we get done and and country after country, like not the UK, but country after country is like tried doing it and their productivity levels are through the roof. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, we, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of hours worked, productivity out. Like we just are totally wrong about our understanding of it. And um, there's a really interesting guy, um, Alex Sujan King Pang, who I um, use some of his the material from his book Rest in the book. And then I interviewed him for, for my podcast too. And um, he he he's on LinkedIn and I linked to an article on LinkedIn that I thought he'd be interested in um, and sort of tagged him in it, tagged him in an existing post. And the comments underneath it were so like, given that he's written this book that so solidly refutes this idea that longer hours equal higher productivity. Um, But the comments underneath it were like, this is crazy. Of course not. No, no, no. You know, everybody knows the more you work the, the, you know, seven days a week, I'm a chef and I work really hard and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, oh my God, we're so, we're so missing the point here. We've so absorbed this idea that long hours culture is like heroic um that it results in higher earnings you know greater career success we and it's just it's such a lie it's such a lie and 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 the uh, yeah i just find it baffling and i imagine that must come from just like the industrial revolution or something like that where it's like you've got oh if i can get because when when it was kind of literally we are making something so if we're going to make this amount of things and we just do more hours of it we're going to make more I think when it's that yeah. kind of work, obviously, like if I'm making donuts and I work for 12 hours compared to two hours a day, obviously a different amount of donuts are going to get made. But most people don't have those kind of jobs where it's literally just mass producing something in a factory. And I think it's, especially if we've got kind of more like knowledge-based work, that like the rest element of like taking the break allows you to come back and work in different ways. And also, and also I feel like for me anyway, I find some of my best kind of thoughts and kind of like ideas to push things forward happen when I'm taking that rest time, especially like if I'm on holiday, then that's, that's always such a unique time because it's like, okay, I've not had to think about anything like it's a daily churn for ages. So it's now my mind starts going off in different directions and I'll be like, oh, well, that's a great idea. And then when I get back, you can then implement that. So taking those breaks, I think, can be really, really beneficial. Yeah. So there's two really critical elements to what you just said. One is that even in the donut making analogy, the work, the donuts you make at the end of that 12 hour shift will be worse donuts or you will burn yourself making them um, or you will hurt a coworker. Like those are the things that happen towards the end of any period of of overwork is that we we make mistakes um, and, and sometimes sometimes we break the donut making machine and you can't make any donuts tomorrow. Like that yeah. it's, it's sometimes really profound and damages productivity for a long time. And one of the pieces of research, which was really key about all of this was um, by a guy called, I think John Pensaval at Stanford, I think. Um, and he actually did study a factory line and he studied what happened if you made people work seven days a week on a factory line um, and it, it reverses productivity. It doesn't just decline. It affects the productivity that's gone beha- before it. It's so it, it's so negative that it damages the work that's already been done. So that's really profound. And then the second thing is that, yeah, again, many studies seem to show that um, your brain is much more creative when you're not engaged in the productivity side of working. So we need those rest periods and we need like mind wandering time. And there's interesting research which which suggests that there's been a huge decline in the amount of time that our minds get to wonder, partly because of the way that work is constructed these days, but also partly because of our phones. So all of the moments where you would have wondered in your mind before you reach for your phone. So you no longer stand in the queue at the supermarket, looking at the ceiling, thinking about nothing um or thinking about something or or whatever and so that that um that kind of creative semi-subconscious part of your brain isn't getting the opportunity to function because you're scrolling um we're all we're all doing it 
And yeah, so there's there's big worries about whether that kind of creative mind wandering stuff is actually being hampered um, by our inability to A, stop working and B, put down our phones. I listen to this podcast called Crime Club. It's very silly. It's people confessing crimes that they've done. <laughs> and they did a special on where they interviewed a guy who worked um, for Amazon. The the crime being how Amazon treat their their warehouse employees. So he worked in Scotland in this gigantic warehouse and it would take him 20 minutes to walk to the staff oh room God. this is how huge it was wow. so uh that comes out of your lunch break um so he would walk to we would walk 20 minutes to the staff room have a 10 minute lunch break and then walk 20 minutes back to his station um God. you are not allowed to you're not allowed to go in wearing headphones in case you've stolen a pair of headphones so literally they would just be standing in these blocks doing like literally conveyor belt just putting things into boxes for i mean illegal amounts of hours um and he was saying like he would start to become mates with a guy who worked opposite and then that guy would then get moved to a different section um so apparently this happens all the time within amazon they 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 move people around um and it's just the the like antithesis of of good work it's just the absolute i I mean it's, it's still that that um and but the thing is like I buy from Amazon, <laughs> so I am part of that problem. Yeah. You do you know what I mean? I'm I am feeding that that ecosystem. Yeah. But like, when you when you do think about work, like that is that is truly the the worst case that it could be is just stood on that production line with nothing other than your own insanity. Yeah, yeah, and I doubt that you will be able to sort of think creatively or interestingly over such a long period of time because I think mm-hmm. our brains don't really work that way. You can do it. You can do it over short periods or like an hour or two or whatever but i'm not sure that you could yeah i don't think you could mentally compose a novel over a 16 hour amazon shift maybe you could maybe that maybe that will emerge but i don't feel like that's a possibility but again i think the thing which is dangerous about that um kind of working is that you know for all that we we're we think that it's terrible um i think the philosophy of it filters into into the rest of the kind of work ecosystem that that kind of notion that you know, work hard work is sort of deified and, you know, that Jeff Bezos is somebody to not emulate exactly, but you know, there's a there's a whole sort of sticky mess around it, isn't there? That um yeah. Yeah. not only are we culpable because we're buying through the system, but also there's this kind of I don't know, uh Messiah like figure at the top of it who we're all like, well wouldn't it be nice to be that rich? And, you know, it's all quite dark and yeah, messy. You're so right, and it, and it does bleed through because there's there's creative agencies that expect that because because you you were saying like he st- stood there might be able to have one idea but then he'd need to refresh and start thinking about things again, but we don't expect that of our of our creative workers. We expect them to just keep churning out like the good stuff continuously. Yeah, but without creating the environment for them to do so, and and that that is true for. Um, us when we work by ourselves often I think too because we get so obsessed with productivity in a kind of factory line style that we forget that in order to have the kind of interesting ideas or creative solutions to problems or um, for me you know a a kind of a really like a really beautiful sentence um, all that stuff doesn't come from sitting facing a screen willing yourself to have an idea Mm. like those ideas as adam's saying like that's not how they come that's not how they arrive in our in our heads um but but we don't set things up so i mean so for one of the things that i have been kind of trying to do on and off over the last year was is leave at lunchtime and go for a walk um which is such a simple and kind of obvious thing to do but it's those moments often. And, and to be frank, I don't manage to do it that frequently, probably only once every couple of weeks. Um, but it's those moments that are usually when something kind of clicks into place or um, something becomes clear or a decision becomes easier or whatever. And it's such, a, it's such an easy thing to do, but it's so hard at the same time because it's just not what we expect. That's not mm. how we expect work to happen when you're walking in a park. We just don't yeah. think of it that way. I think creatively as well, we almost need like a, we need fueling. There needs to be a constant input of different things. Because I think if you don't get that same input, you're just going to 
you're just going to keep churning out the same thing because you're only taking things based on the sources that you've already seen or things you've already experienced in your life beforehand. Whereas that's why I think it's really important to have those at little breaks or to have those times where you go and experience new things because then that allows different things to come in. And I think that's where innovation really happens and where good design happens and good things that are like, oh, I haven't seen that before. That's cool. That's new. It's because you because you, you keep consuming. Whereas there needs to be that balance of, yeah, if you're just there chained to a desk and your boss is being like, cool, design this, design this, design this, design this, and you have no time to go out and source anything new, it's generally just going to come back looking the same or it's not going to have that kind of edge to it that makes it stand out or makes it like something, also something that actually fulfills your own need as a designer to create something that you're happy with. It just becomes something that is just like, pushed through. I think that's totally true. And I think that's one of the things which has been particularly challenging about the last year or so is that in many ways we've been denied the opportunity to engage creatively with anything, <laughs> anything real. And, um, and a lot of the way that we've received stuff has been through screens, whether that's television or social media or, or whatever. And, and I think that that does two things. I think one, it, it does exactly what you just said. It, it robs you of the opportunity to, um, to have moments of innovation, but it also takes you away from your opportunity to see what the world is really like and what other people's lives are really like. And I think that's been one of the really profound difficulties of this past year is that for many of us, and I would count myself in this group, um, the way that we've understood other people's lives has been through social media. And therefore we felt really shit about ours <laughs> um, because it's a real, it's a very false construct. And, but, but we haven't been allowed into anybody else's homes or in anybody's lives or, and, and we haven't seen anybody having a row in a restaurant or, you know, proposing in a restaurant or just being anywhere. Um, and, that sort of um, disconnection is quite suffocating, I think, both for creativity and also just for a general understanding of what human life is and how it looks and how it plays out in all the different ways that it does. Um, and I think I think that's been a really, for me, that's been a really profound struggle, both to be creative, um, but also just to kind of almost remember what it is to be human and 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 how varied that can be and how that's fine <laughs> i think that uh, yeah that's that's been a real struggle this year yeah i think that's that's really the crux of this conversation and and it's a lot of it is wrapped up in the book as well and i really do recommend that people go and purchase the book solo because i think it is is just wonderful and i am going to read it again because I, I am struggling with a lot of these things and i think the the conclusion that I'm coming to is that your self-worth is not based on your productivity. Hard work is good. This book, you worked really hard on it. And because you did, it turned into this incredible uh, piece of work. So there there is a balance and there is a lot of stuff that we call work that is not important, that is not changing the world. And that's maybe the stuff that we can leave in the rear view mm. mirror while we focus on the things that actually are really important. Yeah, that's a brilliant summary. I should have got you to write the back page. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you let everyone know where they can find the book, where they can find the podcast and how to find you online? Um, so the book is, as I probably said the last time, available in all the good bookshops and the bad one. <laughs> um, so yeah, you can find it um, online anywhere and it's solo, how to work alone and not lose your mind. Um, you can find more about the book on the website howtoworkalone.com and you can find me uh, on Twitter at Rebecca Seal but more active on Instagram at Bex, B-E-X Seal. Brilliant. Thank you Amazing. so much. Thank you so much.